Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Sport Dog is the most recognized brand in the hunting dog training industry. The Sport Dog promise to consumers is simple. Gear the way you'd design it. Every product Sport Dog builds is meticulously designed and rigorously tested in the field, ensuring it withstands the toughest conditions you and your dog may encounter. I've used that Sport Dog collar in different temperatures. It just doesn't stop working. Get 20% off your first purchase using code MEATEATER. So go to www.sportdog.com slash MEATEATER to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Real quick, a uh, couple things we want to announce here. So, if, if you've watched Meat Eater and, and followed our stuff, you've, you've definitely seen my friend Kimmy Werner around, uh, Spearfisher Woman from Hawaii. Uh, I love her to death. We're doing a series with her, Spear Chef. So, Kimmy's own spearfishing show. I'm on one in the Bahamas, and holy shit, we have a good time. Got some just really cool, just everything about it, man. It was, like a, it was a dream trip, amazing footage. My kids were mesmerized by it when I watched it with them, just all the beautiful underwater stuff. So episode one came out a few days ago. Check that out. Also, our uh, I hate to call him our former co-host, but it used to be Yanni was on like on this show. Yanni was on every episode. This is back when Yanni produced. Uh, Yanni used to produce our TV show. We were always together, like we always say, nuts on a dog. Uh, Yanni was on every episode. Yanni like missed one episode in years of recording. But he's gone on, he's got, he's got his own stuff, uh, he does his own show, runs his own program. Um, he is launching a new podcast, which is called, uh, which is our Gear Talk podcast, which is Yanni, a collaborative project between our very own Yanni Putellis and Jordan Budd. What we're going to do on our Gear Talk podcast, where they just talk about all things gear, arguments about gear what's coming out what they like how they pack just everything from the gear world deep dives on certain gear items history on gear and how it came to be the way it is 
you can go on over and pick that show up and subscribe to it and it'll be served to you on its own feed gear talk podcast All right, you know what's annoying is yesterday, my wife comes in the house. First thing out of her mouth, I heard you. I heard you don't have a very good grip strength. <laughs> <laughs> First thing, that that was the. So she ran into a couple of you guys before she saw me. And that was her number one takeaway from our day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just something you could work on, maybe you know. I'm holding a. It's a Jamar Plus. By Samson's Preston. Matt, and tell us about this thing. Tell us why you have this, and then we'll, we'll get into greater detail. Yeah, so that's a device that allows us to measure the strength of your grip. And we have another one in the box there for pinch strength. And what we want to do when we do tests involving cutting, we're really interested in understanding the tools and not so much the butcher using the tools. And so we measure the strength of butchers and their grip strength and their pin strength uh, so we can control for that in our tests. So if we're looking at two different tools, we want to make sure that the difference we see is not due to different butchers, but because of the two different tools. And what's the highest score you ever seen thrown on this? Oh, it might have been yesterday. Really? <laughs> With John. I think you got into the 60s. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Hey, our, John, I mean, it was Cal. Cal. Joined by Cal. Cal. Was Cal. Cal. Okay. Cal. 69. No yeah. way. Nice. He just edged Clay and I out. All right. <laughs> Everybody introduce themselves real quick. Spencer, go ahead. Spencer Newar, thy host, Meat Eater Trivia. I was part of the experiment yesterday. I'm Metanair, and I'm an archaeologist at Kent State University. Yeah. Clay Newcomb here. Yeah, I was a part of the 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 big fiasco we had yesterday, too. I guess we're going to tell about that. I wasn't sure if we were. Oh, we'll get into that. Okay. But I want to settle. The, I want to explain something about my low score. Yeah. Dave Meltzer, archaeologist, SMU in Dallas. Uh, John Hayes from Hayes Taxidermy Studio, and I also took part in the experiment yesterday. Uh, why do you got? Why do? I, why are you sometimes an anthropologist and sometimes an archaeologist? Well, so archaeology is within anthropology, and oh, did, okay. so yeah, my degrees I, I are actually. Know, I don't know. There's a flow chart. Yeah, well, there's four subdisciplines, is what there is. Okay. Uh, archaeology, biological anthropology, linguistics, and sociocultural anthropology. So all live under all live under the umbrella of anthropology. We're all studying humans in one form or another. Is it agreed upon that those are like the four subdisciplines of anthropology? Traditionally, yeah, absolutely. And, Could you go through those again? Archaeology, which is what Metin and I do, we study people in the past. Okay. Uh, biological anthropology, which looks at uh, human variation, human evolution uh, from a physical, uh, biological point of view. Linguistics, study of language. And sociocultural is uh, looking at cultures, societies uh, around the world. Mm. Had no idea. Mm. Mm. Archaeology is the cool one, though. That's where so the, that's where the ar kids all go. archaeologists are anthropologists, but not all anthropologists are archaeologists. That's exactly right. Okay, so anyhow. Here's the important part of this whole thing. <laughs> we had to measure grip strength yesterday because we, we'll, we'll get into greater details, but we butchered an entire buffalo yesterday, fresh dead, using stone tools, one of which is laying in front of us right now. And my hands are full. I didn't know how bad it was until I took a shower. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Battered. Yes. Full of cuts. Yeah. 
And I'm going to get ahead of ourselves for a second just to address this one issue. At archaeological sites, really old Clovis sites, you guys find what one might deduce would be a knife made from a flake that is sharp all the way around it. Yeah, all the time. But the Neanderthals were smart, and they knew to make a dull side for your finger. Well, in the Middle Paleolithic, sort of the time of the Neanderthals, yeah, they would do what's called backing, and they would chip away one side to, to make it dull such that they could rest their hand on it. We don't really see that in on Clovis flakes, um, but they might have been using some sort of leather to protect their hands or, or something. Hmm. It's going to eventually emerge that the Neanderthals had uh, phones and stuff. <laughs> One day. Because every day there's a thing, we've talked about this, every day there's a thing like, oh, it turns out they were uh, gentle artists, you know, and turns out they, right, they just get like smarter and smarter. Well, I mean, we were able to interbreed with them, so they're still alive in, in some sense, I think. At oh. about 2 to 4%. Uh, of human DNA, human genomes. Rub yeah. it in because Steve doesn't have too much uh, Neanderthal DNA. No, I came DNA in low, him. which could explain my low grip strength. I, oh, came, no, no, no. I <laughs> came in sub, I came in like subpar on Neanderthal. Mm. Uh, okay, so we had to do grip strength. And I had to go first, so I didn't have a technique. <laughs> and then I was kind of going for like a long, right? A long, sustained grip. And then John got up, <laughs> Mr. High Score here, just got up and did just like an explosive spasm. <laughs> explosive spasm of strength. Steve, use his technique and we'll test it again. Up. Were you saying no, no, you stand, stand up? Stand up. Okay. Here, I'll lift that up. Okay, you, you, might... got, you got into the 60s? Mm -hmm. Now, what number would you be no, satisfied with? I was at with? like 40s. What yeah. number would you be satisfied with this time? The strongest grip in the room. Oh, so you want to you want to hit seventy? <laughs> so okay, you're gonna have to hit test before you do it. And you were doing it on the third notch. Yeah, third notch. So I was pretty low yesterday. The lowest. <laughs> oh, he feels real good. How did you throw a sixty-nine on this thing? Okay, ready. Now you're gonna hear. You're gonna I'm, I'm hear and see some things you might not I'm want to hear and see. <laughs> you might have to hit test again because if you wait too long. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, hit hit <laughs> test. Zero. <laughs> That's not the sound of redemption. <laughs> okay, ready. Damn it. Zero. Get that thing set. <laughs> yeah, let's see. See, now I use all yeah, my yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was going to have an asterisk now next to the data here. man. You need a reset. And my hand's all cut up from the flint plates. <laughs> uh. All right, here we go. So try reset and then really hit test and then it'll, it'll go. Cool. Wait, you're testing your right hand, which is not your dominant hand. Well, that's part of the problem. I didn't want to get, I don't know how much people want to hear about it, but I'm, <laughs> am, I'm, I used to be ambidextrous as a kid. So I settled in on some things I do left, some things I do right. Oh, okay. So you'd really want to, 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 in all fairness, you'd really want to measure both my hands and make an average. Yeah, you can do that. <laughs> well, no, because I'd make uh, it lower. Never mind. Don't do that. Is it ready? Do reset and test real quick. Really push reset. it. Reset. Test. All right. Go. Aha. Uh -huh. 
60. 60.4. I'll over that. Now you hit it, Spencer. Oh, man. We're doing it. All right, no, let's I'm in go. last place. You did a good yesterday, didn't you? See, that's the thing, man. Spencer's got to have a lot of Neanderthal. If that machine him. was any good, oh, oh blue so week. Blue so week. <laughs> if that machine was any good, you'd enter your age in and it'd like <laughs> calibrate, it'd hey, like handicap. A, a bison doesn't care how old you are. <laughs> See, he's doing hole. the prolong. 53. 53. 53. Oh. All right, I'm going to stand up. Is it ready to go? So you, guys didn't, you guys didn't stand up to hit it. Just hit test. Like reset and and then test. Uh, reset and then test. Okay, reset and then test. Okay. Come on, <laughs> oh, fifty nine point six. I pulled in. I pulled in a little hotter yesterday. <laughs> I'm gonna make a you guys hotter. feel real good right now. Hold on. <laughs> you felt like you came in hotter yesterday. Well, I did. I had a sixty two. Sixty-two. Oh, winner! All that, all that, turning, turning, dialing. He's always doing high school, plugging them little cords in and stuff. Is what we got to up. I've been training my whole life, apparently. Yeah, just squeeze it. Yeah, and you make a girl. Yeah, you got a growl. Jujitsu. Thirty-one. Thirty-one. Oh, that's good. Well, if you hit him with two fists, it'll count sixty. <laughs> bam, bam. Uh, I'm gonna pass this on to my proxy, <laughs> <Yeah>, John. <laughs> now, here's, here comes the winner. Uh, I have a feeling John's gonna knock stay, it out. Of the spot. Stand it up. Oh, oh you, you got, got res- oh, yeah, res- oh. sixty-one. Yep. So you didn't you you didn't do as good as you did yesterday. You you got your better grip though. Weakened. Come on, John. Lower 57. yet? Oh. Phil. Strongest man in the room. See, Phil. I don't th- trust this machine now, man. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be waiting for my side coasters. How can my grip have gotten so much stronger overnight? It's, it, I, think, I, I think it's a lot about technique. Uh, I really do. I'll hand that back to you. And it, what other industries use that? Because no doubt they don't make that for archaeologists. <laughs> no. So physical therapy uh, in doctors and stuff, they'll use to see how people's hands are improving if they were injured uh, ergonomics as well so just designing knife handles or steering wheels or all that sort of stuff that you need to grip uh, mm-hmm. that's what this kind of machine is for and you guys have a pinch tester too we have a pinch tester and everyone hates the pinch tester because it's awkward yeah it's real awkward uh what other kind of bite when you're doing studies what other kind of do you ever have anything we need to do like bite strength or anything like that or oh we've never done bite strength but um that would actually be interesting because uh neanderthal teeth are worn down because they used their mouths as almost a third hand to grip stuff Mm -hmm. and so we can when we look at neanderthal teeth and skeletons uh all of their front teeth are just completely gone um because they're holding you know leather or, or meat in their teeth holding the other part of it in their hand, and then they've got a knife in their free hand to cut. So uh, bite strength with Neanderthals would be Now, cool. are you deducing that all based upon tooth wear? Yeah, tooth wear. Yeah, or do y'all have some video? Oh, no. No video. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. thing about me is I'm a Neanderthal, and this is my... <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, that's here's interesting. Another thing I, Very interesting. Here's another thing we talked about yesterday that I wanted to get your feedback on, and you had heard of it, but I want to hear more of how you guys have heard of it. Um, we recently had a Coronado expedition expert on, 
and she'd found a number of she'd found a number of Coronado sites in the U.S. That in, in preparation for that interview, I was reading. Um, I can't remember a guy's name. He's kind of, he's frustrating to read, but he wrote Coronado Night of the Pueblos Pueblo and Plains. Plains. Yeah, classic volume. Yeah, yeah. Ir- irritating author. Mm. Well, it was the 1930s. Yeah, I yeah, yeah it's just like he really uh, went he went out of his way to be like. Well, you, you see, it wasn't that unusual to come into a village and cut everybody's hand off. <laughs> you know, this is, you got to remember the, the times, right? You're like, oh, that seems a little excessive, even accounting for the times. Uh, however, um, and there were many chroniclers of the expedition who later, you know, it's, it's hard to keep track of who, you know, some guy 20 years later is like, oh, and I remember this. And, and anyhow, you can put together a pretty good, idea of what went on but um of of little interest to coronado experts but of interest to me is they encounter some bison hunters in the if i remember right they were on the llano estacado the texas panhandle and they encounter some bison hunters and they are they have dogs this pre-horse they have dogs um they had had no personal contact with Europeans, they rem- the Coronado people remarked on how unblown away they were. They asked them, what are you? And then they described how they would, when they're skinning bison, they would sharpen stone tools with their teeth. I had never heard that, but you'd seen and heard of that. Yeah. I mean, I've, there's all sorts of interesting and unique ways to resharpen tools or to make tools. And yeah, it, you can do it, especially on really thin edges. Uh-huh. Um, Does that, sh- that's got to show up in the, on the dental wear of someone. I, I suppose it just depends on how often you do it. Um, but what do they even mean by sharpen tools with your teeth? Well, I mean, we got a flake right here. Yeah. I can demonstrate now. Um, but, uh, you know, when you've got a, an edge that's fairly thin, if you just can basically just push off a couple flakes with your teeth, just pushing off those tiny little chips will resharpen that edge. You don't need wow. to do a lot. So they but then your, your mouth has it. like your, but then you're, imagine you're using your eye teeth, but then your mouth is full of. Well, I think in the past people would have been used to having stuff in their food. I mean, don't we see like teeth getting worn down? Well, a couple of thoughts. One is that uh, you ought to see probably micro cracks in the enamel if somebody is doing that on a regular basis. The other thing is, is that when you have, Groups that are in areas, well, for one thing, farmers who are grinding corn and, and matates, uh, all sorts of mineral matter gets in their food, gets mm, in their mm. corn, and it does tend to wear down the molars uh, in the back. Hunter-gatherers um, that lived on the plains during the middle Holocene when you had just a whole lot of dust blowing, uh, heavily worn teeth as well for the same reason, right? You just got a lot of grit in the diet. Hmm. We were talking yesterday a little bit about... Um, this is also sort of on the edge of our primary activity yesterday, but we were talking, we were making jokes about that, like me at 48, that I probably wouldn't have been there. And I know you said like, as a, like the Clovis peoples and, and you'd said, I guess rightfully so. You said, we don't know. Cause there's not enough, you know, you don't have a bunch of skeletons laying around to determine to a- accurately determine like where the holes are in sort of the age demographics. 
But what are what are some thoughts on hunter gatherer life expectancies? Uh, probably in the forties would be my guess. And you, what you, is you, happening to them? Just a lifetime of um, being out all the time, having to uh, hunt for your meals, track down those bison. Those bison that weigh a hell of a lot more than the one that we were butchering yesterday, even though we were butchering a fairly large animal, right? So you think it was, it would have been like a... No medical care. Okay, yeah. No, right? I got you there. No, hard living. That's a pretty... Hard that's, yeah, that's a good living. point. Things that would be like uh, appendicitis, right? Appendicitis, uh, tooth infection. Yeah, abscess tooth. Abscess mm. tooth. There you go. Um, so any number of things, which is not to say that they were unaware of... Uh, or lack knowledge of medicinal plants. I mean, one of the things that's really striking is that a lot of the medicinal plants that we are discovering today were already known ethnographically uh, and could have been known for a very, very long time. So while they were quite capable, um, there were probably things, medical emergencies, that would have been simply beyond their ability. I guess it would have been almost a statistical issue, too, that by the time you were in your mid-40s or whenever it's just time for something bad to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? It just the, the amount of exposure to physical risk of hunting these big animals, crossing rivers, falling off cliffs. Right. Disease. Right. Just just random anything. things. Random things um, that you just came on suddenly and you just couldn't cope for any number of reasons, right? I mean, we live very cushioned lives and we've got lots of fail-safe and backup systems. There were no backup systems. Is there any way to guess with with ice age hunters? Is there any way to guess when, like, what what was a peak reproductive age for females? Uh, I do not know the answer to that. But actually, let me add one thing to what I was just saying about how tough life was. One of the things that's come out of the recent uh, genomic evidence, the DNA evidence, is that between about 16,000 and about 13,000 years ago, there was a 60-fold increase in population of people in the Americas. So what that's telling you is that when they got into this new continent, actually, things were pretty darn good. Now, I don't know what the, the start value was. You know, was it 100 people and, you know, multiply that, or was it 1,000 people? But the fact that that population increased so rapidly in such a relatively short period of time tells you that they were actually quite successful at moving into this new environment. Obviously, things are going to plateau. And again, you still have those sort of random events uh, that will come after a lifetime of hard living. Uh, but overall, the population was uh, really quite successful. The There's a new book uh, out coming out by a historian named Dan Flores. Mm. And he has a chapter... Um, called Clovincia the Beautiful. And he has a chapter about a little bit about what's known about Clovis and then speculations about Clovis and the mysteries of Clovis. And in there, he has a, a observation that, that, uh, you know, a, a theory that I had it considered. Um, when looking at how quickly the Clovis hunters seem to have been able to colonize new country, you, you, could, you bring up this idea of why, and then I've, I've even read where people would say, you know, you can't rule out that there was an element of curiosity. Um, oftentimes you'll see huge migrations of people that are propelled by hunger, propelled by warfare. And, um, and you know, and there's not, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not like evidence of it being warfare propelling 
the thing. And he brings up, he, he talks about these various cases of, of known times in the more recent historic record where people have stumbled upon islands, say, that had never had humans on them. And, and so like the, the, the whalers in, in, from the 1800s who would land on these islands and there's no human record on the islands. And they would talk about literally walking up and, and, and lifting birds, plucking birds like fruit from trees. Or just being able to walk up, you know, with tortoises, just, you, you walk up and simply load them onto the boat. Um, z- animals that couldn't even comprehend what they were. And then you look at a place where you go to Yellowstone Park where it hasn't been that you've had a hundred year, a hundred plus year absence of human hunting on that landscape. So only that's only 100 years of an absence of human hunting because not very long, but you can get remarkably close to wildlife there that is not used to human predation. And he throws out this idea that perhaps what propelled you along really quickly is the minute something got hard and you went a few miles yonder, there were animals that had never seen a human predator before. Right. Just keep chasing the dumb ones. And so, yeah, like why Mm. you you do, you hunt for a while in a place for a while and shit gets kind of like, yeah, I don't want these guys walking up to me anymore. Bump along. And then you're back into a place where you can just have it pretty easy. And that might explain like why you sped through the continent so quick. Thoughts? Well, a couple of things. I mean, one is is that these are animals, uh, you're coming into a continent where animals have been dealing with some pretty substantial predators for a very long time, mm-hmm. right? Mammoths and mastodons have dealt with giant short-faced bears, saber-toothed cats, and the like. They're not completely as, uh, asleep at the evolutionary switch, right? Yeah. Um, they, they know how to deal with predators, and they learn really quickly, okay? Uh would that have worked for people? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the first person in um, is is going to have that advantage. Is that going to pull people from Alaska to Tierra del Fuego? Probably not. Uh, is that going to have some sort of local payoff? Well, yeah, uh, possibly. Resource depression always sets in, right? As soon as you start hunting, well, the first day of hunting season, the first gun that goes off, where are all the elk? Mm-hmm. Right? They're gone. Um, and, and the bugling... The bugling of the bull seems to wrap up in a real hurry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So animals respond pretty quickly. Um, but back to what you said at the outset about curiosity. I mean, one of the things about curiosity is that it's actually an adaptive strategy. And I've probably said this on this show before, but basically for hunter-gatherers, insurance is not knowing what's going on and available where you are. It's knowing where you go next when things get bad, mm. right? And so by continually kind of looking over the next hill and just seeing what's out there and knowing where you can go gives you that advantage. So that curiosity actually has a built-in adaptive function that works really well for people on a, on a completely unknown new landscape. So instead of saying he was curious about what was over there, he was scouting. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you got a band, you got a bunch of teenage boys or girls just say, why don't you go on a walkabout? Go look over that hill, see what's in that next valley, and and come back. Uh, you know, th- the other thing is these people weren't looking for a place to settle down. I mean, these these were they weren't sedentary agricultural people trying to find the most beautiful valley 
in North America to raise their family. Build, I mean, they, to build a log cabin yeah, and, and yeah, till yeah. some land. No, yeah. that's that's absolutely right, Clay. And and but at the same time, they're not like sort of fur trappers, you know, going into the Rockies in the nineteenth century where they're just, you know, coming in, grabbing resources and going back out again. They do have to make a living. They do have to raise families. Um but these are, as you say, you know, highly mobile people. So we're not seeing evidence that they're spending, you know, more than uh, a few days at a particular campsite or maybe in the winter a few months, uh, but then they're moving on. Do anthropologists ever consider that there was like any sort of strategic reproduction with ancient humans when a time that like every calorie mattered, that they would do some math that like we can't be having babies in December because it's just too hard on the mothers uh, and, and the other folks in camp. So we got to have our babies in April, May, June. Right. Um, there's a huge complicated literature on that very issue. So, uh-huh. you know, the answer to your question is yes, anthropologists have considered it. Um, the other part of the answer is, can I give you a detailed, easily digestible um, response? Uh, no. <laughs> no, I really can't. Um, we... You know, we look at modern-day uh, hunter-gatherer groups and their demographics, and we can see certain things um, like, for example, the critical role of grandparents, right? Uh, individuals who are beyond reproductive age and what role do they play in helping families, taking some of the, um, the weight, as it were, off of mom and dad, especially mom, in terms of childcare and that sort of thing, and contributing beyond their own reproductive years. Uh, so we do see those kinds of things. What does that look like in a Pleistocene situation? Really hard to tell. Now, didn't the the more modern Native Americans, now it's documented some of their strategy for for when to have mm. kids. Like I was reading about the Shawnees, and pretty much they didn't do much procreating in the early part of the year because they didn't want to have babies mm-hmm. in the winter. And there there were like times when you were permitted to do that. And it also coincided with war and hunting. Sure. Like you didn't want to be doing that when you were mm. going hunting either. But yeah, but the purpose was was to have babies during optimal times of the year. But that may have been a l- much later, much later thing. Right. Yeah. We just really don't have any idea about what's going on in, in Ice Age times. Have you ever heard the idea that uh, monogamy was born of the fact that uh, human females are... Instead of having like a annual, like a once a year breeding time that is sort of like ever present and there's no outward display of, of when someone's fertile. And so it would cause a male to need to stay near his partner year round, year round. And it couldn't be that you could just be like a bull elk and go hang out with other elk (laughs) for 11 months out of the year and then sort of like, yeah, but come September. <laughs> You'll be seeing I know me. where I need to be. I'll be back at the cabin. Yeah. <laughs> but, and it was, yeah, I think I read that, I think it was the physiologist Jared Diamond. It's probably, it might be a widely held belief, but I think it was the physiologist Jared Diamond had written about what might have made, um, what might have brought about this, this idea of a, of a breeding pair, human breeding pair that, stay together in the same place all the time, you know, well, and that we don't split apart and come back for like breeding season. Right? That actually speaks to the, what's called the provisioning hypothesis, uh-huh. which is actually 
proposed by one of my Kent State colleagues, Owen Lovejoy. And the other half of that hypothesis is that it's not that males are always staying by females. It's that we potentially evolved to be bipedal such that males would have free arms to go get resources for the females and bring them back. Um, and that way the female can keep track of the kids and take care of them. So monogamy not only is for sort of the, the mom and the dad, but it allows the, the male to go and, and get food such that his offspring will have a better chance of surviving. Hmm. Earlier you'd mentioned, uh, it can't, somehow it came out, I thought it'd be a great spring off point. You'd mentioned like teenage female, teenage females. Did you mention that? Oh, I mentioned just teenagers, right? They got a lot of time on their hands. They're always looking to cause trouble, send them off on a walkabout. Okay. That brings up a, a, a thing we need to talk about. We covered and we, we've discussed multiple times the footprints oh. found in White Sands National Park. Okay. And see, I want to feel free to, to roam on this one. I mentioned to you, hey, what are your thoughts about the footprints, the ancient footprints that they found? You'll have to describe what they're in or whatever, but but a sort of, it's not fossilized, but whatever the hell the word is for it. A very old barefoot footprint. Um, apparently, uh, it, this was found relatively recently by a, a park ranger in White Sands National Park. It seems to be that there is a, what they determined to be a young female. She seems that she was carrying a child on her hip would periodically set the kid down and pick the kid back up. She'd gone down a lake shore. Uh, a, a mammoth, I believe, or a mastodon crossed her track. Mammoth, yeah. A, ground, a giant ground sloth crossed her track. She came back minus the child. This is all, you'll have to go with this. Like what, okay, are people getting carried away or not carried away? <laughs> But that's the story. That is the story. And I mentioned it to a you. Story. And yeah. yeah, I mentioned it to you. And I don't want to say that you rolled your eyes, but you <laughs> please you, tell us it's all you, true. You <laughs> seem to you seem to have a you had a sort of a, a yeah but look on your face. Okay. <laughs> so here's the but. <laughs> uh, okay. So the site is in the uh, White Sands National Park. That much is correct. That much. <laughs> which is New and, Mexico? Is that right? Which yep. is in New Mexico, surrounding and, the White Sands Missile Range. Uh, or, or actually within. Just, it's within. It's within. It's okay, sort yeah. of embedded within. And uh, I can preface this by saying we've actually been doing some work on the missile range. Okay. Uh, and at one point, we were literally just uh, 100 meters or so north of the footprint site. So we wandered over to take a look. Oh, and really? It's really so pretty interesting. It. Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. I've not seen the footprints, mind you. And we've actually been excavating in sediments that are uh, the same age as the sediments that had produced the footprints. And I think I need to preface all this by saying, look, the people that are working on that site, um, these are pros. They know what the hell they were doing. Um, they know how to identify footprints. I got no question about whether these are footprints. Um, the issue issues really come down to the age of the site. Mm -hmm. So the site is uh, dated 
by the investigators at between 23,000 and 21,000 years ago, which if you'll remember from our previous conversations, is substantially older than the secure evidence that we have for people in the Americas. Yeah, give, which a is quick, around, give a quick review of that. Which is around 15 and a half, 15, 16,000 years ago. Okay. Is the, okay, you use the word secure evidence. Secure, because there's always insecure evidence okay. out there that people are claiming, you know, we've got folks here 130,000 years ago. Just It just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Okay. Now, what about Monteverde? I'm sorry. For Monteverde is 14, 14 oh, is plus. It? Okay, yeah. I was thinking. And you 20. buy that one? Oh, yeah. Oh, that one's real. That's regarded as oh, unassailable. Yeah. yeah well, that, that's, the, that's the latest, that's the oldest one. No, it, because that new it, thing it, on no, the Columbia. Right. Okay. Right. Around the snake or salmon. I can't remember where it is. Yeah. Oh. Uh, well, we've got some other sites that are sort of around that 15, uh, 15 and a half plus or minus age. Okay. And you Clovis know. is how old? Like 13? About 13. Exactly. All right. So 23 to 21. The site it's a big is- big jump. It's a big jump. People might be like, yeah, hey, what's the difference? But- Yeah. No, it's substantial. The site is sitting on the floor of an old lake bed, okay? Old Pleistocene, Lake Otero. Um, and there's a couple of issues with, um, with the dating. And then I'm going to get to sort of the larger questions around the site. When we're looking at, when we're looking at, at radiocarbon dates, we're looking both at their reliability. If you date something again, are you going to get the same answer? And we're looking at their validity. Is the answer correct? Okay. What they're dating is, um, the common name is ditch grass. Uh, the scientific name is rupia. Now, rupia photosynthesizes uh, dissolved inorganic carbon, which is a really fancy way of saying dead carbon. If you ingest dead carbon into the system, the dates that you're going to get in return are going to be older than they should be. Okay? Mm. So... In terms of the issue of reliability, there was a paper that literally just came out yesterday in hmm. the journal Geoarchaeology, wherein they took some rupia seeds from, um, and the scientific term is not literally seeds, but we're just going to go with seeds because that makes the most sense in terms of the conversation. They dated um, a, a bunch of rupia seeds from what's known as a lake ball. What happens in these old lakes is that rupia grows in relatively deep water, upwards of two meters. Okay. And during um, these windstorms that will blow the water of the lake, um, pull, pile it up on one end, drop it down on the other. Sure. The rupia gets dislodged and gets piled up on the beaches, right? And, and sometimes it forms balls where you just literally have a whole mass of rupia seeds. They took one of these balls, they divvied it up into portions, and they dated the different portions. And there was a span of 1,500 years. Ostensibly, if you're going to date a single event, you ought to get the exact same number, yep. right? So what that's telling you is that lots of different rupia seeds from lots of different ages are tending to get lumped together. So if you're... Yeah, but they're not lasting 1,500 years in a ball. Wait, but wait, but okay. wait. <laughs> Then there was a paper that came out three weeks ago in the journal Quaternary Research where they actually dated some rupia that had been collected in 1947 in the same drainage region. Okay. okay? And these were modern rupia samples collected in 1947, radiocarbon dated six months ago. The radiocarbon dates on things that were growing in 1947 came back 7,400 years old. Why? Because they were ingesting dead carbon. 
Rupiah, oh. Rupiah is basically sucking up ancient carbon. So the dates that we have of 23,000, subtract 7,400, what do you get? Around 15,500 years ago. So in other words, the dating that they're doing, they're dating ancient things that may well be the same age as the footprints, but that doesn't mean they're that old. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with, and my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years you get one of these knives up and open it it is sharp like something that came from outer space and here's the deal they make knives that can be sharpened you can work on these knives if you don't want to work on them you send it to them and they'll work on it they'll get it sharp phenomenal hunting knives if you want to see them in action we just did uh me and uh john hayes the taxidermist just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, it was in the 70s and then even up to 80. So me and my kids are pouring it to it. And after a while, I realized they didn't drink anything all day and they haven't drank anything all day. Well, that's why it's important to get hydrated and have something you're going to like to help you, encourage you to get hydrated. doesn't matter. Outdoor events, turkey hunting, playing sports, beach days, mountain adventures. Summer requires extraordinary hydration that's built for everyday dehydrating moments. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, 
plus eight vitamins and nutrients in a single stick. It's clear why Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. Tear, pour, live more. One stick plus 16 ounces of water hydrates better than water alone. I'll say that again. Hydrates better than water alone. Turn your ordinary water into extraordinary hydration with Liquid IV. Get 20% off your first order of Liquid IV when you go to liquidiv.com and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Explain how are they associating the rupiah with the footprint? Ah, okay. You can't date a footprint. Right, it's just what, what's the word for those? Rock. It's not. I mean, what what do you call like a? Because it's not like a. It's a feature. It's not an artifact. Um, no, but, but why is it? Why is it still there? I mean, let's say it's a thousand years old. Like, what well, what makes it that the footprint is still there? Because I, normally you walk along a beach, and later in the day, your footprint's not there. Okay, anymore. this is actually another one of the problems and issues that I have with this thing is. Um, so footprints are said to have been found over a 2,000 year period between 23,000 and 21,000 years ago. Okay. They are found in sediment. And, and I know this because we were digging in a trench 150 meters away in the same deposit that is rock hard. Mm -hmm. And when you read the original paper on the footprints, they talk about excavating the footprints with a dirt rated chainsaw. I've done a lot of excavating. I've never excavated with a chainsaw. The, the stuff is so rock hard to cut it out. So my question is not so much how do the footprints get preserved, but how do you find them when you're chainsawing through a block of sediment? Well, how did the first person that found them find them anyways? He, yeah, he must have found them on the it's surface. Eroding on the surface, but then they excavated down with their chainsaws and got several layers of these things. It's puzzling as hell to me, and I, I'd really love to see a but video. But I mean, footprints are... Are, are preserved in some ways. We have dinosaur tracks. We have all kind of tracks. In so, rock. I mean, something would yeah. have happened. But these aren't in rock. No, these are in sediment. Because the dinosaur tracks, usually it's walking in some kind of, uh, I don't know. Mud. That, that, that eventually that yeah. mud fossilizes. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a puzzle. And so the, these tracks, if you, if you went to one of these tracks and you poked it, you'd indent it. I would think so. Okay. Well, actually, if you, if you could, because again, it's... When we were taking sediment samples out of those same deposits, I was literally wailing away with a rock hammer to chip out the dirt. So I'm, I'm just not sure how they found multiple layers I mean, couldn't of Couldn't it be different that far away? 150 meters? Could, I mean, no, because the geologist that was working on the footprints was working with me on the other side of the fence on the missile range and said, mm. this is the deposit in which the footprints are found. Mm. But leaving that aside... That th you have footprints stacked on top of each other in different layers. Yeah, and yeah. then I can't quite figure out how they were excavated, and I'd really like to see you know, how these well, things be, were Well, that'll covered. eventually become... One would hope, yeah. yeah. Th apparently, there were videos made. So I'm not doubting that they found these so, things. I just don't understand how they managed to excavate them in the condition that they're excavated in. Okay. And the rupia seed, the rupia does something different than other plants. Well, in fact, in that same paper where they um, dated the rupia from 1947, they dated another plant that had been collected that same year by the same botanist, and it dated to only 300 years ago. So, But, but it, other things would be more stable. So there's something about the There's something the about rupia. There's yeah, something gotcha. about rupia that differentially is taking up this dead carbon that's giving it inflated ages. And I, and I interrupted you or didn't give you time to do it. Why, 
why do they feel that the footprint and the plant are bodies? Oh, well, they do, but um, others are skeptical because if you've got, um, let's say, the an edge of a lake and you've got people walking on it or you have one of these big storm events and it washes up a bunch of rupiah on a surface and then people walk across that surface, mm -hmm. it was deposited. They were both deposited at the same moment, but they were both not necessarily uh, – well, they were the same age, except that rupiah is dating older than it should. But why – okay, you find a track. Mm. What is it about the vegetation that you're like, I'll date this vegetation? Oh, 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 oh. it's the only thing that you can date. Well, it's just on the same layer. It's on the same layer. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's so it's just, not like it was has a footprint over it or something. That I mean, is there is it pretty good that that that, that, yeah, that, that the there foot are, was on the plant on the plant or well these are these are just literally layers of these seeds. I think. The, would you say the assumption is that if there was a footprint and on the same layer, yeah, exactly. because that that's like a capsule of time. Exactly. So if, the, if there was a rupia growing. Yeah, I'd want level. more, man. I, I thought it was that I assumed they were taking it where they could see the the foot. Well, I mean, the, I, the, the, I, the, that would the be so random, though, you know? No, it wouldn't. Well, okay, let me. If let we me did that, all of human history would just be a big No, no, I'm saying <laughs> that you have a track. Let's say you have a, let's say, you, imagine there's a piece of seaweed. Yeah, and you stepped like, on it. And you stepped on it, and then that preserved, and you could see where, like, Absolutely, this footprint crushed this plant. And you actually And then you'd be like, those are friends. Steve Brunel is perfect world. <laughs> and Steve Brunel's perfect world actually exists on the coast of British Columbia. There is a site that has 13,000-year-old footprints where somebody stepped onto vegetation. Huh. Yeah. Well, how do you know those are accurately dated? Uh, they're not absorbing uh, dissolved inorganic carbon. That plant. That plant. Yeah. This is No, this is a tricky plant. A couple other pieces of information. So I've worked out there. You're on the floor of an old lake bed. Mm -hmm. You stand out there, you look around, and you think, what the hell would have attracted people to this spot repeatedly over 2,000 years? Now, there's nothing out there today. Now, that's not to say that there wasn't yeah, it was a, something. It was a marsh or something, right? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to say that there wasn't anything there, you know, 15,000 plus years ago or 23 if you believe the dates, which I'm skeptical about. But the other piece is, is that people apparently or allegedly or purportedly came here over a 2,000-year period repeatedly. There's not a single artifact, no features, no other evidence of a human presence except their footprints. What were you digging at? We were north of there, <laughs> and we were testing that same deposit, and we were actually taking DNA samples. Oh. DNA of what? The sediment. Does sediment have DNA? Oh, Yeah. Clay, you're, you're into the whole new world now. <laughs> Sorry, man. Someday these boys are going to be able to – you'll be able to go. You'll, you'll be able to dig down, get to a certain spot, get a scoop, and you'll be like, oh, oh yeah, there was a 13-year-old male here. <laughs> okay. Wow. Steve's going a little bit a little bit farther than I would go. Um, but um, So this is work that's actually been done uh, over the last 20 years. In fact, um, D you're looking for human DNA in the anything, soil? Anything. Anything. It's like anything. A living animal's or, so, or plant. So, um, you know, we've talked about the ice-free corridor. Mm. And one of the things that we were able to do with ancient DNA out of lake cores is we were able to detect 
basically the moment that um, animals and plants start occupying this region. Because when you take a lake core mm. out at the very bottom, it's just gravel and grit and whatnot. And at a certain point, suddenly, boom, you've got, uh, you've got mammoth DNA, you've got bison DNA. Oh. Uh, and we use, it's called shotgun sequencing, where you basically take sediment and you just look to see what is alive in here or what was once living in here that contributed its DNA. Uh, we just had a piece last year um, uh, with a whole series of sites around the Arctic, and we were able to trace mammoth DNA over time and watch the mammoth populations basically shrinking into a small area of the Timur Peninsula of northern Siberia uh, up to around 4,000 years ago. And we were wow. able to do this not by their bones, because bones don't survive long enough, but that's because a mammoth only is going to leave one skeleton behind. But over the course of its lifetime, it's shedding DNA constantly. We could go out to the site where we were butchering that animal yesterday. And we could go and take, um, I mean, all you guys were bleeding out there, right? Mm -hmm. um, we could take some <laughs> of that sediment. We could get DNA out of that sediment, and we'd find bison DNA. We'd find ranella so that, DNA. That DNA, find... that... that... <laughs> John Hayes DNA like, like in DNA the was like this must have been ex an extraordinary uh, grip strength. <laughs> well, that's it. We, we, that <laughs> wouldn't degrade over time. Well, yeah, it does. does it no, no, Clay's absolutely right. Um, DNA, uh, you know, in your genome, three point two billion base pairs, right? By the time it gets into the archaeological record or the geological record, and mind you, DNA has been recovered from upwards from sites upwards of two million years old. No, really? Seriously. I would mm. not, Steve, wow. I would not lie to you. <laughs> but just not like horribly degraded. Though. Oh, it's terribly degraded. But it's recognizable but in some that, way. That yeah. actually makes it identifiable as ancient DNA mm. because yeah. ancient DNA in general is no more than about 100 letters long. If you see a string of DNA letters that are thousands and thousands of letters long, you know that somebody in the lab sneezed. <laughs> and contaminated your sample, okay? Mm. But if it's anywhere, you know, 50 plus or minus, uh, that's ancient DNA. And what you have to do, and this is, a, this is a very analytically challenging thing, is you've got to take all those little fragments of DNA and figure out what is the sequence here and then map that sequence to a reference genome, which will tell you it's mammoth, it's bison, it's something else. Uh, and so a lot of the work that's done in ancient DNA, ancient environmental DNA is, is actually the term, uh, involves compiling reference sequences so that when you're doing the shotgun work where you're looking at all the DNA fragments within a sample of sediment, you can match it up with whatever might have been out on that landscape. Wow. One thing I appreciate, though, about the work you guys do is that uh, – I mean, just I guess just this is part of the scientific process in general. Is you have you you engage in work often that isn't going to yield the answer, but you're developing a tool. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like you're almost start laying the groundwork for you're sort of building a toolkit or laying the groundwork for probably maybe the next generation to really enjoy the benefits of. Well, that's exactly right. Um, but that's how you push things forward as well. Um, this is research, um, pure research. Uh, what we do, I mean, let's be honest, we're archaeologists. Uh, what we do is useless, um, mm. but it's not necessarily <laughs> meaningless. 
um, we learn things. And in the process of learning things, we also learn what we don't know. And then we push forward again to try and figure out, okay, how do we remove that piece of ignorance? What is the greatest defense of like your job? If someone's like, oh, what you do is useless. Well, I think people are fundamentally interested in who we are and how we got here. Um, and I well recognize that, you know, my son is a doctor. He's a real doctor. He's an MD. <laughs> I'm just a PhD. <laughs> and so I'm not going to cure cancer. Uh, I'm not the guy that you're going to call on the airplane when somebody gets sick. You know, you're going to have to wait 12,000 years and then I can help you. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, in, in our modern world, I think people do appreciate where we've been, um, the history of the human species, um, because it's a fascinating history and it tells us a hell of a lot about who we are today. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it, you'd, you'd wind up in the same landscape as, as if you said, why do, this might seem like a stretch, but bear with me. You might be, well, why do musicians matter? Why do visual artists matter? Be like, uh, the information inspires people. Why right? do podcasts? Causes you to, yeah, causes you to ask questions. Yeah, why right? do podcasts matter? I mean, why are people listening to Meat Eater? Why, why am I getting all these emails, and thank you, by the way, from your listeners who do say- people send you a lot and, of pictures of things they found in their yard? Well, yes, that's, there's a lot of that. <laughs> and, and a, fundamental, a fundamental question that everyone has, whether they realize it and have consciously- articulated before is who are we and where do we come from? Because that, that gives us reason, justification. I mean, there is so much philosophical fodder that influences whether we make electric cars or whether we go to war or whether we try to cure cancer or whether we try to say that human life has value based upon deep history of who we were and where we came from. Well, uh, Spencer knew where, where the, That's why this is wait, important. Here's where the rubber meets the road Absolutely. for me personally is um, I wish I had been an Ice Age hunter. And when they invent time travel, I want to have a very educated guess about where I want to land and when. That, that's the whole reason. <laughs> yeah, so for him, it's a practical <laughs> issue. <laughs> I don't want to make a horrible mistake. See, I could have said like, oh, sweet, White Sands Missile Range 25,000 years ago. And whap, there I am. And you'd be and the only no guy there. there. Like, no, there's no one there. <laughs> there's no one there. There's no one there. I'd be like, ah, damn it. <laughs> Should have listened to Meltzer. <laughs> hey, can I, can I ask him a question that has to do with the broader study of archaeology? Yeah, please. So, so... You, in your status in the anthropology, archaeology, archaeology world, like you questioning the validity of this work, is that is that okay? How would you feel if someone said that about your work? Is this just part of the the is you know what does Steve say? Cynicism is the chastity of the intellect. Oh no 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 no. Skepticism. Skepticism is the chastity of the intellect. Yeah, Did yeah, you yeah. invent that? No, some Spanish okay. writer. No, no, I so I'm not. I, I, it's Chris, just a genuine question. No, it's it's an absolutely fair question, and and Metten and I can speak to that because we just had to respond to a criticism of a paper we published. Oh, look, in in academia, the currency. Uh, Did you are, tell him to come say that to your face? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like um, the, guy, the, guy, the guy we read about yesterday. I'm sorry, inside joke. Go inside ahead. joke. Um, 
ideas are the currency, right? This is not the business world where, you know, who makes the most money and who dies with the most toys or anything. This, uh -huh. is, this is all about ideas. And ideas are open season. My ideas, your ideas, everybody's ideas. And so Metten and I were just... Uh, just published a paper in which we responded to uh, a critique of a work that we had published. Matt, and you want to give a quick... Yeah, we actually talked about this in January when I was here. It was the idea that Clovis points are kind of like these automatic mammoth killers um, and that they were designed to just, that's what they were for, to kill big proboscideans. And our research questioned that and doesn't seem to hold up. Um, but some colleagues of ours uh, wanted to sort of roll the ideas around and, and question that. And we responded and with evidence and, and that's it. I mean, everything we do. Do they call you and give you a heads up? Not uh, in this case. Yeah. <laughs> and is there a little animosity in there now? Um, There's gotta be. Well, it's no, because we, yeah, just a touch, we won. Right? Um, so. won it's like somebody won down in your taxidermy <laughs> yeah. work. So it's not like if someone's going to, like if a what? journalist is going to do a hit piece on you, they might call you at the last minute. To, to give you a chance to respond. You, th there's not, he doesn't say like, Hey man, you know, you're going to open your email tomorrow and I'm going to kind of attack your, your last, you know, the, the last two years of your life. Well, I think the point though is everything we're doing is in some way wrong. Um, and yeah, I think you've got to go <laughs> in, you've got to go into science with that attitude because someone's going to do something better 10 years from now, 50 years from now. Um, if you're going into it thinking that you're going to build a legacy that's going to be untarnished and, and held. No, that's just not the case. Yeah. Well, hang uh, on a second there. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Something I learned yesterday, I, I asked men what will be the greatest criticism of the study that we did. Um, he gave his answer. But then I, I learned this, that the feedback during the peer review portion is anonymous, which is like kind of freeing. And I, that sounds like very beneficial to your community, right? Or no? Um, it's mostly anonymous. I'll tell you what I do. When I get a paper that I really like to review, I'll just, I'll, I'll say glowing things about it. I'll say, publish this immediately. This is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I'll just send it back. If I get a paper that I really don't like, I will review it in detail and I will sign my review because mm. people are entitled to know who their critics are in part so that they can just say, oh, it's that guy. So positive <laughs> feedback, him. positive feedback, you go anonymous. Yeah, nobody needs to know who their fans are, but people need to know who their critics are. And I don't want to hide behind anonymity if, if I'm really unhappy about a paper. Have you mm. ever had to criticize someone who was le a, a legitimate close friend? Well, you know, the footprint stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, no, one of my longtime professional friends and colleagues is part of that team. Mm -hmm. And he and I have, you know, talked about this and, and, you know, he's quite open. Uh, I'm open to criticism. You know, we, we go back and forth. That makes us smarter. Or at least I, I'd like well, to hope Have so. you ever seen it go, have you ever seen it uh, where people couldn't just, ha they couldn't hack it though and got personal? If you don't say yes, I'll know you're lying. I mean, in your, in your, in your, in your Folsom book, I well, mean, there was a whole clash. I mean, it was like a drama. Yeah, like no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to think of specific examples that I can give you. And, and part of it is I'm running through several. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, no, it can absolutely ruin relationships uh -huh. if you can't handle it, right? But if you accept the fact that your ideas will be criticized, you know, well, just put on your big boy pants and deal with it. Yeah. I mean, we criticize each other too. I mean, we'll, when we're writing Have a paper. Have you guys ever fist fought? 
<laughs> Not yet. <laughs> no. But like if we're writing a paper together. Oh, yeah. You know, he'll, I'll say something sort of. What's too, an example? Too far. Well, so with this Clovis hunting paper, mm. um, I thought that we might think about how it dealt with extinctions. And, and he said, no, that's too far. That's beyond the data. And so we talked about that for a while and I kept pushing it and he's no. And, and then we settled on what the data actually meant. And so I think that's good to have criticism within a team as well. We started arguing last night about what was that thing? Oh, the, the, the oh, yeah, I heard a criticism this morning at the <laughs> break room yeah, table. Right. I'm, <laughs> seeing, I'm seeing a reality TV show. <laughs> Metten and Meltzer. <laughs> Both of them with their fists up. Yeah, no. Um, but this is what we this is do. what you should be doing. Yeah, this is what you should be doing. Um, that That's useful to get a lot of the stuff out of the way just amongst your own team. Well, exactly right. Wouldn't you rather be embarrassed in front of your friends than publicly in front of everybody yeah. that doesn't like you? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You just shoot a bunch of holes before you even got started. It's the only way to go. It's the yeah. only way to go. I mean, look, we all want our papers to be well-received, and the only way to ensure that is to, you know, give it that harshest criticism you can, find out all the holes before somebody else exposes them. I want I want to move uh, I want to move on to what we were doing yesterday and where those questions were born of and what exactly happened, but first I want to get into another mystery that I found out yesterday. Uh John Hayes from from Hayes Taxidermy. You don't you don't do birds and fish? <laughs> nope, I no longer. Talk about that? Mount birds and fish. I don't know what like, he, like, he just like flat out yeah. turned business down yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Max is like, hey. Hey, you, when you meet a taxidermist that doesn't do birds and fish, you're talking to a man that knows what he's doing. Well, that's like, <laughs> Max, I've never seen someone so defeated in my life. <laughs> Max like, goes up to his truck window to bring up business. like some ducks and he just, <laughs> dude, walked away like, <laughs> right. like just like deflated. <laughs> What's up with that? Real quick. Um, or take as long as you want. Trying to like just uh, figure out where the passion for me really is. Uh -huh. um, uh, my experience on birds and ducks was very early on. Uh, all the fish, you know, we we did mostly skin mounts back then. I uh, did a little bit of reproductions and it's just not my strong suit. And for me to take something in and know that at best it's going to be okay. I, I just, I can't do that. But what if you have to do a diorama? I would hire it out oh. by somebody that was really good. John, is it not ah, partly financial? No, no it is. It's financially, you know, you can, you can it's profit viable. off of it. Yeah. You just okay. have to be good at it. Okay. And I don't feel that I'm at that level to charge somebody that amount. Is it connected to product. your personal passion inside the outdoors too? Like you don't care about, or you, you're not as interested. He in, hates birds and fish. You hate birds and fish. <laughs> He wishes, he, he, out he, crow, he, he wishes they were gone. <laughs> no, um, I think it, uh, it just didn't hold the same fascination for me that the other stuff did. Hmm. There's also like if, if you went to a, a restaurant that was fine dining, their menu is significantly smaller than if you were like Applebee's where you can get tacos hey. and spaghetti <laughs> and hamburgers. Sushi. That'd be yeah. a good sign. The fine dining of tax. <laughs> Hayes Taxidermy Studio, the fine, fine dining, dining of taxidermy. Tax Limited menu. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, Clay, Clay had a little, Clay really broke John Hayes' heart yesterday where Clay said something like, uh, talking of someone else said, not a friend, you know, <laughs> well, but a taxidermy awesome. friend. <laughs> taxidermy friend. somebody I said, I'm really close to this one taxidermist. Well, I mean, you know, like you would be to a taxidermist. <laughs> 
Yeah, you gotta know how cl- close to kick people, right? John's like, John's, he had to go like, so all my friends, that must no, no, make all my friends No, he looked at me and he said, Clay, what are we? He's like, what am I to you? Uh, all right, so I don't care what you guys does it. Mettner, David, how if let's say you ran into someone and you had like three seconds to say what we did yesterday. What did we do yesterday? We tested the effectiveness of different Clovis tools for butchering a bison. Oh, that was great. Hmm. I've been looking for a way to describe it. I went a little too deep. My wife kind of lost her. I think you lost was, her on grip strength. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, she was also, we were also trying to do our daughter's school open house. And I was also trying to explain all this. I wish I'd have just had that in my back pocket. I could have gotten over it more quickly. Okay. Uh, in greater detail now, what happened and, and just lay the whole thing out. Like what, what sort of deep questions are there that this could be a little window into answering? So we're always interested in better interpreting the stuff we dig up in the archeological record mm-hmm. and experiments uh, and sort of replicating different tools can give us windows into what we are digging up because, you know, obviously the stuff we dig up, it doesn't, p- people aren't around anymore. They can't tell us how this stuff was used. Um, but we know the past was a very dynamic place. So by making tools and using those tools, we can kind of get a, a better sense of that dynamism. Or how do you say that word? Dynamism? Dynamics, past dynamics. Dyna- past dynamics, that's much better. Um, and so what we did yesterday was we made some Clovis fluted points and, and some... He met and made them. Oh, yeah. Well, He's yeah. a flint I, I made Very him. skilled yep. flint knapper. Yeah, this is, if this we is ringing a bell. Well, both Dr. Meltzer... <laughs> And Metten have been on the show before, and we talked about... Uh, How come he doesn't get to be a doctor, too? Dr. Metten? Dr. Aaron? Well, uh, that's a good point. Yeah, Metten's his I first mean, name. I, I worked, no, I know that. But. I worked really hard to get him a PhD. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> <laughs> he did. Uh, I don't know why. I think because maybe... Um, He's I, professor. Oh. Uh, it, but you're not? I'm, well, I'm tenured, but I'm not full professor yet. Oh, okay. It totally so. has to do with age. I mean, this, Could be. I think it does. That's what I was going to just say. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're compared to me, you're probably a young little whippersnapper. I'm 39. Oh. Yeah. You should be calling me Mr. Ranella. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Aaron. Dr. Meltzer has been on the show to discuss his books and things. Oh, it, uh, I, I was going to ask you about this earlier. Where's the book about the the high Colorado site? Mountaineer, it's out. I didn't it's send out. that to you. No, you sure talked about sending it to me. It's out. <laughs> Note to self, send Steve a book. Or well, I Where can people find that book? Ah, University of Colorado Press. And I presume it's on Amazon, just like Is the- it? What's the new, it called? Um, Mountaineer, a Folsom Winter Camp in the Rockies. It is on my oh, list. man. And, and the new gonna, edition- I'm just going to buy it. Okay. And then there's right the now. new edition of the First People's Book, which both of them came out last year. I don't, oh, I guess I after one. I guess after I was on the show, I was on the show last spring. So yes, both both books are now out. Thank what you. What changes asking. from wow. old edition to new edition? The most important change is the genetics, because oh, here it is right here, right, right. seventy five bucks. <laughs> the mount here it is. You got to pay to play. It's out of stock. <laughs> it's out of stock. You sold out. Oh, well, it's good. To the know. Mountaineer site. 
Hey, a, you, you, you got to release this after we get the book, Steve. Now it's going to be sold out. Well, I'm going to buy it now before I'm going to get in there now. Hold on, it, it might be available. Okay. Well, no, no, it's hold on one sec. The Mountaineer site, a Folsom winter camp in the Rockies. David Meltzer and Brian Andrews and Mark Steiger, three of us. Uh, uh, Metton, Metton and I did the chapter on the uh, projectile points and the uh, scrapers as oh, well. Oh. 54 bucks for a paperback? <laughs> I know I know you personally set the price, right? <laughs> it's you can just pay him directly. <laughs> there's so there's two in stock. I'm grabbing one of them for me. Cole, you want the other one? Yes. Alright, we're getting them both. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. All right. We just bought you out. Thank you. They're gonna have to go back hey, to the printer. I can just hear a Bear Grease podcast now. Home on it. the on the Mountaineer side. I had a lot of fun on the Folsom one, Clay. Let's let's yeah. do Mountaineer. People people still talk about that one. I I think it turned hey, out really our well. our video, I think, well, yeah, in, we can talk about In my cart this. is a Hello Baby video baby monitor with remote camera. What? Oh, well, you know what? There's a You got baby. some news to break, Steve? No, no, but my wife, my wife was just telling me about a baby shower. I'm going to put that in save for later. <laughs> and, okay, I'm in checkout. All right, suckers, if you try to buy his book, Mountaineer, good luck. <laughs> Tough no. Diddy. Steve's going to relist it now for 108 <laughs> <laughs> Double the price. Yeah, me and Claire are going to go do a little book business now. Uh, All right, so go on. Oh, one more thing I want to ask about before you really get into it. In the same book I just read that had that Clovincia, the beautiful chapter, I had no idea. Um, it sort of goes in like, well, roughly how many Clovis points have archaeologists found? Does about... What, what, what it wind up being? 10,000 is what I had seen. Somewhere before. around 10,000 Clovis sites? Clovis points. Clovis points. points. Cl- yeah, points. not sites, yeah. Points. Yeah, Around 10,000 Clovis points are in existence, mm, thir- known to archaeologists, not it's, counting coffee cans and people's I think it's closer sales. to 13. There's yeah. 13.5 now that you say that. Yeah. It's funny when you see that number online, uh, it says like only 10,000, so they're really rare. Not knowing like... Uh, you know, having a reference to that number, 10,000 is like, whoa, there's a lot of them, but but apparently not. What's striking is how few sites we have. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of isolated points that are found just all over, plowed fields, whatever, uh, principally in the eastern U.S. And these folks, but think about it. You're So John broke two of them yesterday. And, mm-hmm. and that was actually just fine. I really <laughs> wanted the, to see It was one. the enormous grip strength. <laughs> it, was, it was that grip strength. They just couldn't take it. Yeah. Um, and so you can imagine that you're making these things constantly over the course of your lifetime. So 10,000 is actually a pretty low number. Mm. And it's probably, or 13,000 is a low number. And you're sort of undercounting all the ones that are in those coffee cans or mounted, you know, over somebody's uh, fireplace. It has to be more. There has oh, to absolutely. be far more. No question. That are on bolo ties and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And Clovis is kind of like a brief window, right? Like only a few centuries or something? Yeah. Uh, Well, sort of it, um, it's kind of smeared across time and space. So the earliest stuff that we see, you know, is 13.5. Some of the later stuff, depending on where you define Clovis, would be, what do you say, Met 12.6, 12.5? Yeah. In Um, sort of northeastern North America. Well, and also too, I was just doing some number crunching. I know that ten thousand sounds like a lot, uh-huh. but if you how if you say Clovis is what five seven hundred years, yeah, long, so thirteen thousand. Not necessarily all in one place. Sure, right. You know that's that's eighteen points per mm. year, 
um, which is not a lot if you think about it. Right. How many did we bring out yesterday? Ten. And, and how many needed to be repaired because of grip strength here? Uh, <laughs> a couple. <laughs> grip right, strength. So, yeah. Yeah. 18, so 18 Clovis points per year, which is not a lot. And, and when you think about the fact that, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can make a Clovis point in 30 to 40 minutes. So... There's a lot still out there. A few, well, and also, too, just that's not a lot of work. We think, you know, these Clovis points are the end-all and be-all, but for Clovis folks, they may not have been that important if you're not spending that much time per year to make them. Mm. And we were working with Clovis tools yesterday, which, is it accurate to say, like, that's the oldest tool we have from humans in North America? I think you'd say they are among the earliest or some of the earliest uh, artifacts. They're, they're certainly the most distinctive yeah. early form and the most widespread form that we know about. And, and they're like 13,000 years old, but humans had been here 15,000 years ago, maybe 25,000 years ago. What were they doing for those thousands of years oh, if well, not they, using Clovis? Yeah, no, it's, it's earlier cultures. So cultures change over time, and as a consequence... Uh, the the distinctive weaponry, hunting tools, butchering tools, knives, whatever, uh, changes as well. Now there are certain things that, you know, are pretty timeless. The scraper, yeah, that met and made that proved to be kind of not very useful yesterday. Mm. Uh, you can see similar forms going back hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, and coming all the way up to recent times. So, Spencer, you, are you asking, like, what were they? So if Clovis is 13 and we've been here for 15, what did they do for the 1,500 years before Clovis? Yeah, and I guess I'm kind of asking, like, was Clovis Arrowhead 1.0? Or was it or was, was it maybe, like, 5.0, but we just don't have 1 through 4? Well, I think the other thing to keep in mind is even though people might have been in, or were in North America, that doesn't necessarily mean they were everywhere in North America. I think there are some areas where... Clovis would have been first, in, you know, maybe New England, maybe the the Upper Great Lakes, um, and and so you know where we get oh, like they might have been the first people to in in some regions, some regions, yeah. I so think. when we say that people were here fifteen thousand years ago, that doesn't mean everywhere. That's a good point. Never that never occurred to me. Yeah, yeah. You could have had like that stuff along the Columbia River or whatever people yeah. that were using salmon resources, yep. but that doesn't mean they were hanging out. Yeah. Because, I mean, the Great Lakes covered with ice. Uh, can't live on a glacier. So, Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater hey everybody i'm talking here about montana knife company from our very own state of montana 
This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people, 10% off with the code Meat Eater. That's a good deal. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay. It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save terms and conditions apply i I derailed us but back to the bison yeah like talk about what we did and and how that might prove to be like what we were up to how it might prove to be useful or not so uh we made a bunch of replica clovis tools fluted points and and large what we call bifacial thinning flakes which are really sharp and uh we did all sorts of analyses uh, before we did any butchery on these tools, we made sure that the, the Clovis points matched uh, in terms of their form, actual Clovis artifacts. We did something called microware, which is where you look at these tools with a high-powered microscope to look at polishes and striations and all that sort of stuff that the tools could be used for. Um, we did, uh, what else did we do? We did so many pre-analyses. Um, but anyway, the point is, you guys then, took those tools, you butchered the bison, and now we can relook at those tools to, to see what they look like. And now we can compare those things to the actual archaeological record. So what you guys did So you'll get mod- an idea of what they were doing with some of the tools that we have found. And, and so let's say we find an archaeological site with Clovis Point and some bison. 
and we see a bunch of Clovis points from that site, but there's no microware that matches the microware that you guys produced. Well, that's really interesting. Why is that? Why is that microware different in the archaeological record versus the ones you guys produced? Now, if it's the same, that's really interesting too, and it shows that maybe similar activities were happening. But as we talked about yesterday, um, that whole issue of equifinality, lots of different processes can result in the same product. So what we're trying to understand is, okay, we got some signatures yesterday on the stone tools. So we'll at least know, okay, one of the possible pathways to that particular product would be the kinds of activities we saw you guys engaging in yesterday. Hmm. Uh, let me give it from, I want to give it from my angle for a sec. So we long ago, um, we've all become acquaintances through this show and, um, Corinne, tell the history of how, tell the history of this. Cause you kind of understand it a little bit better. Um, yeah, we've probably been talking about this for quite some time. I know on Metten's episode, he talked about getting some of the crew together who, you know, have had a lot of experience butchering, processing, breaking down large game, um, getting them together to potentially participate in some kind of experiment if we were able to uh, identify either a bison or an elephant uh, that might need to be culled. Uh, oh, that, that's right. <laughs> that's, now I remember him saying it, but it's story, not, yeah, yeah it's, it's not always easy to, it's to in, find in the circumstances. And then there's, yeah. and then there's concern, there's, there's uh, ethical, ethical concerns. concerns. That play into it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, with kind of our larger web of folks we're, we're connected to. Um, in the animal business. In the animal business, finding uh, So you're a telling bison. me there was an elephant potentially on the table for us to be? <laughs> well, well, we did. We fell We've, real short. We John felt, and I probably wouldn't have come. We felt as though we would hit, and we still might, we felt as though we'd hit on some zookeeper somewhere who had to euthanize an elephant or there's an accident. I don't know. I, I don't know. Right. And we thought that if that person knew that there that it could potentially, and then you you have an elephant that it gets euthanized, that it might be that there's some donate it to science. Yeah, that right. there be that that, that yeah. person sent that person's sensitivities and sensibilities might say, well, knowing that we're in this unfortunate, unavoidable circumstance, and perhaps right there would be the, the 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 body would be put to use by researchers so we thought we would just be able to connect some dots gotcha. that might right. otherwise not get connected right. just through audience reach right and and that led us down this thing of, of working on this project um where we did the bison work and so we started out with a um a commercially it was a commercially raised bison from a producer who does uh north bridger bison he does custom slaughter, so he raises animals and sells those animals, and he he sells them while they're still alive. Mm-hmm. People he he knows he knows he's going to produce X number. You can come in and he sells shares. Um, he even talked about that he had a bull that he was selling his ground, and he had eight purchasers for one bull, or you could buy a half or a whole or whatever to help. That's his business. Uh, we started with a fresh dead two year old bull. We did the same, the same exact sort of approach you do for ground butchering any large animal. And we had a bunch of people collected, five butchers, who all have extensive field butchering experience. One of those included John Hayes, who's done more skinning and fleshing than any of us. Uh, 
and we did the animal. We did it by doing the the primary opening cut, basically running anus to chin, and then we um, worked on half of it using one collection of tools. Skinned half of it using one collection of tools. Skinned the other half using a different collection of tools, and boned the thing down into all the primaries. And I went into it thinking that we were going to be working under. Uh, I, I have thought that we'd end up working in headlights of a car. Yeah. I told my wife I that I would be. Did. I told my wife I'd be home at nine thirty last night. I was home mm. at five. Yeah. I was like, we're, we're probably going to wind up, we're going to have a bunch of trucks pointing headlights. That would have been pretty demoralizing if you just shared that with us when we were going there. I'm glad you did. I, just, I, I feel like these things never are on schedule. Yeah. Uh, it's just not going to be as easy as it seems. No, yeah. I thought it would be, uh, I thought it'd be very hard to do it with these tools. But in fact, yes. it was, like in all honesty, man, it, I felt like it took about as long as it would have taken. It, it wasn't a major, a major difference in time i mean it 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 took more time but not a substantial amount more time i mean i think we skinned a whole adult bison in under two hours two broke hours, it up yeah. into two hours into, two hours. into quarters yeah. and then even had a guy well i mean i guess that even counts deboning it and now there were five of us and yeah we were trying to work efficiently and the the parts of it the opening making opening cuts was a lot different Anything that required a little finesse was different, but just in terms of someone holding the leg and someone pulling the hide and you're cutting the fascia, you know, you're cutting no difference. Yeah, yeah. There was, there was one point where I said the, the biggest limiting factor for what I was doing, deboning a quarter was that it was a bison. Not that I had a stone tool in my hand. It was just the sheer size of it. And then I was one person trying to constantly rotate this thing. Yep. So it, mm-hmm. it wasn't even like that much less efficient in some ways. What I pointed out, uh, what I pointed out, I was texting my brother Danny about what I'd been up to, um, and he was like, "Man, it takes us because they they actually hunt them a fair bit in Alaska. Cause there's draws you can do to draw f- for these different herds they have." And he says, "Man, it takes me a lot longer than that with a normal knife." And I said, "Well, there's five people," and I said, "And also consider this: we had a stone tools expert who's there sharpening." For us, so we're all you know. So we had it, it was different than if you start even with a normal knife. If you don't, if you're not a good sharpener, you don't have sharpening equipment. You hit a point where you're just pissing into the wind. Yeah. yeah. But we were so we had like someone there doing giving us like razor edged sharpened tools. You know the way I thought about it and would describe it is that if I had one of Doctor Aaron's points, Clovis points, that was good in my pouch and went deer hunting back in Arkansas tomorrow and killed a deer, I wouldn't worry about skinning it with that stone point. I mean, it wouldn't be a factor. I wouldn't be like, hey, I'm going to be three hours late coming home because I got to field dress this deer with a stone point. It would have just been like, oh, okay. Do you, got want, the stone do you want point. one? You, yeah, of course. All right. <laughs> we'll make, uh, we'll yeah, and it. another huge takeaway for me was that a Clovis point makes a hell of a Clovis knife. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, but that's probably the way they were using them, though, right? Well, and what was cool, too, yesterday with that experiment was that the two different tools seemed to function better for certain tasks. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, the Clovis point worked good for some things, whereas those big bifacial thinning flakes worked better for other things. Should we clarify that right now? We've said it a couple of times, but so we we had 
two like Clovis points that would have been napped that were connected with artificial sinew to a wooden handle yep. that basically looked like knives. Yeah, in no. multiple sizes, and we were we were told to pick a pick a numbered Clovis knife essentially, and you guys recorded which knives we were using. We butchered one whole side of the bison with these Clovis knives that you had made. The second side of the bison we butchered with big, big, big flint flakes. Is like, that silica? Yeah, kind of like discs almost. Yeah, they, they, you, you would pick it up on the Picture ground and wouldn't realize. Where the handle is real sharp. But it, but yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, minus the handle and sharpened the, all the These way flakes, though, you would pick them up on the ground and not recognize that they were made by man. I mean, it's just a flake, a big like flake the size of the palm of your hand. And we butchered an entire side with those. And I I was used I went with the leather, used a piece of leather to on protect the, your fingers. Yeah, and it, it, it worked pretty good. Oh hey, you know how he just said mate you wouldn't recognize this being made by man? Can you there's a thing I wanted to talk about what we forgot to talk about. Can you talk about what you guys are doing in Antarctica? Yeah. We uh have a paper coming out in the journal Antiquity and uh we uh you know, there's lots of claims for archaeological sites being real old in different places, and, and the claims are dependent on the rocks themselves, what people think are stone tools. Like a lot of the stuff I send you pictures of. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> This has to be a tool. <laughs> yeah, and you know, because it fits so nicely in the hand, or there's like even flakes taken off and, and things like that. So uh, it occurred to uh, sort of our group of researchers um, that, you know, if we could find a place somewhere on earth where humans had never been, that'd be a great natural laboratory for looking at how flint and basalt and obsidian fracture geologically, just in their sort of natural habitat without humans around. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we went first to the Polar Rock Repository in Columbus, Ohio. And then this past summer, we went to the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, England, and we just started going through all sorts of their rock collections, millions of rocks. And what we found really questioned for me, uh, what exactly we know about stone, because we're finding stone tools with morphologies uh, that are quite advanced. So things that look like hand axes, mm. things that look like they could have been made by Neanderthals. All sorts of simple stone flakes, like the one you know is being held right here in the the studio. Like you, you could find stuff that would look like that. You but you're saying it wasn't made by but a human because, or a Neanderthal. But these were yeah. Antarctic rocks. Yeah, we know 100 percent that these were not made by people or hominins or monkeys, primates. Um, so it's real scary. <laughs> yeah. The challenge is that um, a lot of artifacts don't have attributes that are that are obviously and distinctively and securely made evidence that they were made by humans. So you often have to look at the context. What Metten is doing in Antarctica is showing, okay, we've got a completely geological context, and yet we have things that look like artifacts. That someone might elsewhere claim is evidence of humans. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if the, if the context is a little ambiguous, and it's, you know, if it's not, if you've got something that you're not quite sure it's an artifact, but it's sitting next to a hearth, and you've got a bunch of smashed animal bones, and you've got evidence of a structure, yeah, okay, the artifact might be ambiguous in terms of its attributes, but looking at the context, you say, okay, fine. The problem is, is that when you've got situations where, 
geology and geological processes have the opportunity to create mischief and make things that mimic artifacts, and that's the only thing you have, and you don't have a good archaeological context or other evidence that will confirm it, that's where it becomes problematic. And a lot of the claims for truly ancient sites are based on just these sort of ambiguous artifacts in ambiguous contexts. Like here's a 100,000-year-old mammoth and here's a sharp rock. Exactly right. And so what Metten is able to show or will be able to show with this Antarctica stuff is that do not be fooled just because something looks like it could be an artifact. That doesn't mean it is an artifact. You should label that paper. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So would... Probably ain't Clovis. (laughs) Would these naturally occurring looking like tools when first peoples came into all these different areas and they found these rocks when they were like, I need something to cut something with. Would that be like the original prototype? Well, and then they decided we need to start replicating this? Yeah. So there's a few hypotheses for why people start to nap stone. And, and one of them is uh, inspired by the site called Dakika, which is in East Africa. And it dates to about 3.3 million. And uh, there they've got uh, cut marks on uh, ungulates and bovid type creatures and what they is that think how you say it i don't know which which part bovid 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 yeah i don't know sounds smart when he says it yeah yeah bo- i always i thought it was bovid i don't know it could be bovid yeah. yeah bovid yeah but I had the, my, my uh doctor recently said tinnitus and i and i said oh, i thought it was tinnitus he goes I don't know what it is. <laughs> That's just how I say it. <laughs> Sounds like a good doctor. <laughs> but they think that basically Australopithecus was using naturally sharp rocks that they would just pick up uh, to cut mark bone. Now, mm-hmm. maybe at that point they were like, it's a lot easier to break this stuff ourselves and scour the landscape looking for naturally sharp rocks. Mm. Or like the rock mm. Steve picked up works way better than my rock. How do I get one like Steve's? Well, like number nine. make it. Yeah, number, number nine. nine. Yeah. <laughs> Hill number yeah. nine. Yeah. Well, another piece of that, though, was when Clay asked for an axe to smash uh, mm-hmm. those ribs, break mm-hmm. them apart from the vertebral column. What he ended up doing, through no fault of his own, was the axe that he was using was getting fractured and flaked. One of the hypotheses about where tools come from in the, in the original, you know, two, three million years ago, is that humans come onto a, uh, an animal kill. They haven't killed the animal because they're not capable of it, right? But some big predator did. And there's not a whole lot of meat left on the bone. So what do they do? Um, They grab a rock and they start wailing away at the long bones to try and get to the marrow, right? Because that's something that the big cats uh, or lions, whatever, uh, aren't going to access. And in the process, they create sharp flakes. Yep. And a light bulb goes off and you think, sharp flakes, I can scrape meat off, right? Uh, so there's lots of ways in which the pathways could have ended up, you know, getting, you know, the, the possibility that John raised, uh, that Metten was talking about as well, um, or just this sort of accident of you're smashing a rock uh, against bone and it breaks and you end up with well-cut fingers and lots of really sharp flakes that you mm-hmm. realize, okay, I can use this. One of the things that, that I know you guys, are, you're reluctant to draw these hard, you know, you're not reluctant. You can't draw all these hard conclusions. And, and, and like you pointed out, we're not ice age hunters. You know, we don't know what went on. You, you can't rule out weird stuff. Like we're kids messing around, you know, and whatever they're doing, they're throwing rocks at stuff and playing and smashing things. You know, you just, you don't know what happened. Right. Um, but I feel like you can take certain things like, like fleshing that hide. 
I feel like someone someone could arrive at this thing that that I don't know how they did it. They didn't do it that way. Yeah. So in in some ways, experimental archaeology is really useful for showing how something definitely could not have happened. Yeah. So you know, like that scraper, right? So that's a situation where, given the form of that scraper, you know, it doesn't look like you were able to flesh that hide with it. So and sort of go back to the drawing board and try a different form. I think like with the scraper deal at during those times, what we were trying to get off the hide wouldn't have been like what I would deem as a waste product at my studio or like, I got to get this off, dispose of it, then I can get to what I need to do. I think they would have still been trying to harvest that. And then you'd have been left with just like when you skin out a beaver and it air dries and you're just a light, light film. You're not trying to roll three quarters of an inch of meat off the hide. You know, that would have been something you were still trying to consume. That's interesting. Okay. That's how I felt yesterday with like the the shanks of the quarters is that it took me as much time to get the meat off around like the shanks as it did the whole rest of the quarter. And so Mm -hmm. like I I could spend just as much time removing 90% of the meat on a back ham as I could removing the 10% of the meat on a back ham that came from the shanks. And I told Michelle, I was like, this just like isn't kind of, this isn't very reasonable to like get the lowest quality cut of meat and spend the same amount of time to get, you know, 10% of the yield. So like maybe they ate this off the bone. Maybe they just like didn't really need it that badly to get this, this piece of meat, um, that was like the size of a, I I don't know, a water bottle off compared to everything else. You know, here's a thought that I had while we were doing it yesterday is that we're skinning this bison and we have all this other context of our human life around us. Like, Steve needed to go to his daughter's open house. <laughs> well, uh, uh, if I, I needed, could make it. If you could make it. Uh, you know, we wanted to go have dinner at a restaurant. I mean, I'm just Ooh, making yeah. stuff up. I'm making stuff up. Got to get to the processor. <laughs> and, and the way we, we chose efficiency for every single decision that we made. We chose efficiency to skin this bison. And I was thinking if, and we kind of talked about this yesterday, if there had been one of the Paleolithic hunters there with us and watching us, he undoubtedly would have done it different. Oh, go, and, go read, make, go read, uh, make prayers to the Raven by, by the anthropologist Richard K. Nelson when he talked, when he's with the Koyukuk. Right. What you do and don't do. Yeah, they have skinning st- animals. Holy cow! They had so many, yeah, superstitions. You can't and touch spiritual that. Spiritual. You can't like so and so can't do that. You can't move it that way. Yeah, you know. Oh. Well, but here's my point: is that that they what we did yesterday was literally like them walking onto a pile of twenty five hundred dollars worth of American dollar bills. I mean, like this was their life. This was their the reason. There was no higher moment in their world other than just like family stuff. But it's like, man, we, we, this is what we, we are professional hunters. We are now capable to take this that we're processing and live in peace for the next two months or whatever. And so just that mind frame would have caused them, I think, to potentially have done things totally different. Maybe they took two hours to get the shank off mm-hmm. or maybe they were running from short faced bears and chunked them into the woods. But bear in mind and, and Matt should speak to this because bear in mind the, the we were doing something just to help them interpret what was from around then. But right. let, let, let me get back to something you said yesterday though, Clay, you, you said 
imagine at the Folsom site, you got 32 bison that you've got to process. I think they would have gone for efficiency and speed yeah. uh, under those circumstances because uh, those 32 bison aren't going to butcher themselves. And, and you had evidence of that by the way they gourmet butchered them. Absolutely. Which they, Absolutely. they, they were taking choice cuts, leaving some stuff. Moving, moving fast because, you know, 32 animals, unless you've got 100 butchers out there, um, and if you've got a small group, you better work fast because it's just not going to... And know, it's 85 gonna, degrees out. And it's 85 <laughs> degrees, yeah. What's yeah. the closest an experiment has come to this before, like what we did yesterday? There's been a few butcher experiments um, on elephants and, and bison. Um, so, you know, I think replicability in science is always important, you know. And I, I think we've made certain improvements on past studies uh, in terms of how we documented things and, and we've made certain modifications to how things were documented. And, but undoubtedly... I think we were much more systematic about it. Yeah, too. Just, yeah, more, yeah, more systematic. But undoubtedly, someone will use this study as a stepping stone to do it even better. Um, and, and that's the, the key point. There's no ever final word in science. And I, I think once you start thinking in those terms, you're in trouble. We, we touched on... Well, I want to point out to people that in, in addition to you guys doing your work, we had we were able to document it. We had videographers there to document it in a way that was just there was around documenting the process. So you'll be able to see this whole thing play out eventually. Yeah. In addition to reading the paper that you generate from it, but we've spent a bunch of time talking about the, the, the stone. You're also interested in the bones. Can you explain? Well, I think David yeah, would right. Um, so when you get to a kill site. You will find uh, sometimes, not always, cut marks on bone. And those cut marks are presumably a consequence of the butchering process. And so one of the things that we were also paying close attention to, and, and John will be helping us on this, is the activities that were done kind of around the bone. And uh, when, when John is able to get everything sort of all cleaned up, we'll uh, ship the bones to Andrew Boehm, who was out there with us uh, yesterday, and he's an expert in this kind of thing. And so he will be examining the cut marks on the bones because we actually, once again, have a, have a link between the process and the product. So we know what was being done when you guys were hacking away at the ribs on both sides, right? Uh, so we'll be able to see what that looked like and the difference between struggling with those flakes as you were as opposed to using the Clovis points to really just pop them. Uh, and go right along the rib rack. You know, I, I've read that the Neanderthals, uh, there's evidence suggesting that they parted out their dead, that they like quartered out their dead. There's a couple sites where um, there might be evidence of cannibalism. I don't know if they quartered them out though, but they will find cut marks is, on. Is the, But I'm saying is that, that's, Presumably, that's because of cut mark on of bone. cut marks. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, so they do find cut marks on on some children, and you know, if times get tough in Ice Age Europe, it's really cold. Um, They'll find cut like that. Yeah. So we're gonna yeah. have to get a cadaver. I've tried. I do. I do want man. I, like I'm reluctant to say it, but I want in on that when you get that going. <laughs> well, you know, experiments. Yeah. Uh, if if John, nothing if, no, if nothing comes up sooner, I might leave my body <laughs> with very my specific. I thought about doing one. that. I thought about leaving my body. Um, you know, I might have it drawn up in my will <laughs> that I want to be used in a cut mark 
experiment. Wait a minute. Well, you got this tools. whole thing about being dumped for the Grizzlies. I know, but I might change that. <laughs> they can dump I was going to have it dumped for Grizzlies. We were all, we were all kind of getting used to that idea. <laughs> I'm always telling my kids, I'm like, you're going to have to quarter me out and dump me here. But I might do this instead and make my kids work on the project. Yeah. And then the Grizzlies can have access <laughs> yeah, they to the won't bones be after. Or anything. Yeah. Dump the bones afterward. Yeah. So, so John will clean all the bones up. In a way that doesn't add new marks to him, John. Yes, that is going to be the... He's like, uh, no, I scraped them all the scraper. Yeah, I got a knife <laughs> out, scratched it all off. Brillo pad. <laughs> no, we'll put them in a big tank for a few days of uh, warm water. Just start emulsifying all the flesh off of it. And then once we finally get it to where it softens up, then we'll power wash it off. So there'll be no tools introduced. And you'll be able to look and you'll be able to say, we know, this is where it's cool. You'll say, we know that the marks on said femur yep. were made by a hafted Clovis point, or we know that the marks on said femur were made by a flake of a person with extraordinary grip strength. <laughs> right? So made by clay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then later when you're digging around in some old bone bed and you see some marks, you might make if, a more educated guess. If the marks are distinctive. If the marks are distinctive. And that will be something kind of interesting to find and out. And now, it, it, I've got to bring this up. On the Folsom site, there's some famous, famous marks on the jawbone of one of the bison. Several, actually. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it was on several of the bison. Yeah. Up up on the, on the lower jaw where there were distinctive cut marks on the jaw where it's believed they were cutting the tongues out. So when we're looking at the jaws of this bison, we'll be able to see whether uh, Clay Newcomb, in removing the tongue, uh, left his mark. Clay was, was nervous about doing it because he knew about those they were, marks. They were watching me close. He knew about those marks and he didn't know if he was going to be able to. He, he, on the way there, he brought up, like, what about bias? <laughs> because I've seen those marks and what if I... Can't resist going. Like, tick, 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 tick. Yeah. His, his name is in the marks. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Clay, if they're signed, that's yeah. a giveaway. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I was paying attention when I was cutting that tongue out because I, I cut the cut the tongue out, and uh, I, I was I did everything just as efficient as possible. Okay, and uh, I don't think I touched that bone. Well, much. we we don't see them all know. the time. Yeah. So yeah, it's entirely possible. Now it probably was slightly biased in the sense that you knew. I would not have had him do it. We should have had John do it. Yeah. I'm, I'm confident we left some tool marks on the ribs. Oh. I'm very confident. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was when I was going to bring up, like, what obviously is the way to go and what obviously is not the way to go. Having a big, giant chunk of, uh, what was that rock called? Oh, Georgetown Flint. Yeah. Beating on ribs with a giant chunk of Georgetown Flint <laughs> yeah. is not the way to do not that job. Yeah. We decided no. in retrospect we should have given him a smaller yeah. hand axe um, because there was just too much opportunity for that thing to fall apart. Yeah. And the, the waves of force were having to travel too far through the thing before it got to the bone. Oh, really? Did, did Clovis yeah. use abraded rocks like what you might see in like Southwest hand axes? Like groundstone? Yeah, groundstone. No, not really. Not really groundstone, but we do see abrading stones. Yes that were used for um, perhaps in grinding the edges of Clovis points or in uh, straightening the shaft of a spear. But not hand axes made by just no, no, grinding no, no, away a no. rock to get an edge on it. No. They didn't like that stuff. No, they their toolkit uh, in terms of production was very efficient. And I think it's because they're moving around so much and they got a lot to do. They didn't and, have a six pound rock they like to carry. No, no. So they're they're trying to 
basically get this rock down in a portable form as quick as possible. When uh, you don't know where this is going to appear because you got to do your whole submission process. Yeah. Do you know? No, I'm not yet. And we generally won't think too hard about the journal until we see the final paper and okay. all the analyses and stuff. Cause that can dictate where it goes. But, but do you know you'll get a paper? Yeah. <laughs> we'll count on. Yeah, definitely. You feel like you'll get a paper out. Oh, of it. 100%. I mean, yeah. And, and what, what's going to be a criticism of this study when that anonymous feedback rolls in? Well, I think, uh, you know, be, shouldn't that clay there. <laughs> I was about to say, not enough Neanderthal and Steve. <laughs> There'll be information that people may have wanted that we didn't collect, right? That'll and be a criticism. That'll be a criticism. They might have done it a different way. and But I think the great thing about experiments is that they can be redone. Like if you sure. excavate an archaeological site, you can't re-excavate it. Um, but with an experiment, you can do it again and alter variables. Um, and so I think that's a strength of, of experiments. So... And how long will it take you to do all the work and analyze and write the paper? Uh, several months. And because um, once I get back, I'm going to sort of give it my entire focus. But and, you got to have the bones back before you can make Well, so we can work on other aspects. There's so many pieces to this in terms of the microware and the morphology, the Clovis points and efficiency, all that sort of stuff. Um, we can work on the stone stuff un until the, the bone stuff is ready okay. to be sent to Excellent. Andrew. Yeah. So, yeah. All right, boys, stay tuned. Can, yeah. But real quick, uh, just I think this would be a good time just to say how appreciative we are to collaborating with everyone and, and Meat Eater, and it's just been awesome. And I don't know if you remember, but in January when I was here, you asked me for something. Do you remember what you asked me for? <laughs> well, probably a whole bunch of Clovis points. <laughs> you asked me for a Folsom point. Oh, I did ask you for a Folsom yeah, point? Yeah, and so uh, got a little something for you. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't oh. know just open it real careful. Uh-oh. So. It's a big white box, about yeah. as big as a big birthday cake. And you have to do a little unwrapping, too, just... Steve is opening a white box. Childish grin on his face. All right. <laughs> inside is another box. Oh, inside is another box. Paper is crinkling. Holy smokes. Anticipation. I high. thought... This oh, that's right, because I wanted a foreshadow. Oh, yeah. Oh, that is gorgeous, man. Mm. So just all of us, all the archaeologists, we're just so appreciative and with for all you guys. And so we thought that this would be uh, something for you that you could look at and everyone could see. And a couple Clovis points hafted onto Port Orford fork shafts. That and, is gorgeous. So so it's a it's a box. And, uh, or like a, what do you, how do you describe it? Well, a it's a picture box. shadow box. Yeah. A display, yeah, like a treasure box, a display box with two hafted Folsom points says to Steve Rennell and the Meat Eater team, Folsom points napped on Texas Georgetown Chert Gray and Fredericksburg Chert Tan by M.I. Aaron, hafted on Port Oxford Cedar Four Shafts by M. Wilson. Man, thank you. Hey, Where's that going to go? Office. The podcast studio. Where there else? Yeah, that's right, right here, man. Can, Steve, can you show it to us? That's amazing. It's beautiful. Oh, yeah. It is. Wow, look at that. Thank you so much. Very well done. Oh, it's gorgeous. I'm going to pass that around. Uh, while you're waiting for the paper to come out, um, you can go check out, right, Corinne? While you're waiting for the paper to come out, <laughs> and while you're waiting for this eventual episode to drop where you get to see everyone getting their hands real dirty and cut up using Clovis points... You can uh, watch Meat Eater Season 11 
Mm, for free. For free. On our own website, a window of time. It'll be available for free. Um, on 10-26, October 26th, you'll see an episode with me and Evan Hafer uh, from Black Rifle Coffee hunting the rainforest of Southeast Alaska for black-tailed deer, getting our buns kicked till the end. Um, so check that out while we're waiting for the paper to come out. And if, so, you're waiting for the, if you're waiting for the Mountaineer site, I don't know, the Mountaineer site book, me and Clay are taking bids. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure they'll come up with other copies to sell. No, it said, it said available soon. Hey, yeah. season 11, it's going to be rolled out. It just starts on October 26th. They're doing one a week. One a week. Yep, on okay. our old website. Okay. Yep. Before we get out of here, can we talk about the email you sent last night, Menton? Yeah. He didn't send me an this email is last the, night. He, he sent me an email. This is in all caps. So this you, guys, this was, you guys got like a little side thing going on? No, now? no. Well, this is the this is the criticism we talked about <laughs> yeah, earlier. This, this is the disagreement from last night that spilled over into the break room this morning. But I was real excited. Menton wrote me an email <laughs> last night. He says, well, okay. Is, oh, oh. Okay. I was I was really enthusiastic. <laughs> I'm just going to preface that. So, all right. This is all caps. It says, Spencer, I think you solved a huge mystery about Clovis technology. I am so freaking excited. Mm. And then oh, he talked to me. Oh, my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, he just got real jealous. <laughs> so let, let, let's, let's hear about what, what you think we discovered. Well... Honestly, I think we got to save that for the paper. Okay. Yeah, oh. it's we're gonna. Well, but then, but then, but then, but then oh, wow. David shot you down. <laughs> no, it's it's it has to do with the intentionality of of how these things were made and got it. So yeah, it, we'll, we yeah we'll get there. Mm, major Excited. cliffhanger. Excited. Yeah. And Spencer did it. Spencer, yeah. It's just it's a it, what's cool is it's a it's a new way of thinking <laughs> about a feature of a Clovis point that is not in the literature. Wow, good job, Spencer. Spencer. But it could all be wrong. It could be wrong. It could be wrong. But it's cool. I, maybe it could I be right. But it could be, it right. could be right. That's right. If not, I still got a high last night from getting this email from Matt. Like, <laughs> my stomach a, turned when you sent it. I was, I, yeah, I was like, Shelby, I don't know what's going on. But <laughs> <laughs> I hey, may have just done something I, incredible. <laughs> I think things might be looking up for us, Shelby. <laughs> <laughs> I told you this would all pay off. Yep. Man. yep. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks so much. It was a lot of fun. I, I, I'm not joking. I will. Uh, I said yesterday, like this is the highlight of my career. Um, really, I mean, like like a real high point. And the other thing is, I will talk about that in and in, in we in a probably a very annoying way. I will talk about that <laughs> for the rest of my life. So will we? Yeah. And it Same left here. me wondering, like, why have I, you know, why have I never done it? All the knowing about, oh, you can flint knives and da 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 da, da. like that. It took this like many question. decades and someone else to lay the whole thing out for me to just do it. Like butcher an animal with a flint knife. I just fortuitous. I don't understand why I never yeah. did it. Just well, it worked out with the podcast and just everyone sort of getting to know each other and yep. just. But to be able to do it with stuff that looks like, that's like to be able to do it with stuff that resembles. And is made from the materials left behind at actual Clovis sites um, was was fantastic. And I think for us too, all of your observations using those things. Absolutely, we were taking notes yeah. on what you guys were saying, and when you were complaining, when you were happy, we were making mm, notes yeah. of what was working and what so wasn't. We, that was really helpful because for us. With, with your knowledge of how to process these right. animals, like we will look at these tools in new ways. 
And, and so that's, I think, just the, the benefit of this collaboration. Okay. Elephants next and then folks. Done, done and done. <laughs> Same spot. <laughs> hey, I, I know we're closing down, so I, we can't get into this at all, but it, I just got to say it. I mean, I killed a bear with a stone point like five days ago. It's interesting that all this happened. It's the first time I've ever hunted with it. Well, I've, I've hunted with a stone point before. First time I've ever killed an animal with a stone Look, point. Just like, it's yeah, for another day. With a Folsom point. Yeah. I watched the video, the little video clip of it last night. Yeah, it's, w- people will be able to see it, and and Dr. Meltzer was well, our These guys aren't interested because you did it with a bow. <laughs> right. That's another story. Well, yeah. how, how and when will be will you so, be able to see it, Clay? S- the the release date is unknown at this okay. time. I don't think I can go into the release date, yep. but okay. but there will be a a film mm-hmm. put out through Meat Eater. Dr. David Meltzer is one of our feature guests. We go to we went to New Mexico. We went to the Folsom site. Yeah, and and then we made some Folsom points, and I killed a bear with a Folsom point. So. Yeah, run that by the old run that. Good thing he doesn't have to run that by the old ethics committee. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm ready, man. I, I'm. I'm no, no. Ready I'm to just take... saying these guys have a whole higher level of like. Do you know what I mean? Right. They exactly. got to put up. They, they don't just call a couple guys and they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank Especially you. for this. Thank we'll cher- we'll cherish this. Thank I'm not going to hog it. <laughs> I'm not going to put it in my bedroom. <laughs> I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to keep it in the studio here. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you very much. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.